You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 17, and we're going to pray before we begin. And you found your place. Our gracious God and Father, we are so thankful for your word. It speaks to us of things which are far beyond our ability to comprehend fully or to appreciate even. How unsearchable are your ways, how unsearchable is your wisdom in salvation and the glory of of your name. And we thank you that we can get some glimpse of that in the pages of Scripture. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to understand that and to behold the, the great things that Christ has done for us, for those who belong to him. And may we rest in that security and in the surety of his payment for our sin and his ability to save to the uttermost those who come to him by faith. We thank you for Christ our Lord, and it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen. John chapter 17, we're going to read together the first five verses. This is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Right at the beginning, we're going to jump into a theological issue and one that's going to require you to think through some things and to engage your mind a bit. And uh, the reason I'm beginning with this is because we're all still awake, and that could change within the next 20 days on a nice, or 20 minutes on a nice warm day like today. So here's the issue. Last week we looked at verses, uh, well, the end of verse two, verse two, that the Father has given authority over all flesh to the Son, that the Father has given to the Son a people to save. This is the sovereign act of God. God is sovereign in salvation. He has chosen in Christ a people from before the foundation of the world. He has chosen out of the mass of humanity a people that he is going to save for his own eternal glory. And then the Father took those people whom he has chosen out of the mass of humanity and he has committed them to the saving work of his Son. He has given them to the Son. And then he has also given to the Son authority over all flesh, all people, all things, Everything is under his authority, under his sovereignty, so that the Son can use that authority and that position that the Father has given to him to save fully and infallibly and perfectly and forever all, not some and not many and not most, but all whom the Father has given to the Son. That is that is the essence of John 6. That's the essence of John 10. That's the essence of John 17. In fact, those passages make absolutely no sense whatsoever. You can't even understand those passages unless, first of all, you understand that that is what Scripture teaches. The Father has given to the Son a people to save, and the Son will not disappoint the Father. He will do and has done perfectly all of the work that the Father sent Him in to the world to do, namely to save and to sanctify and to secure for Himself forever a people for the glory of the triune God. And all of this authority that rests in the hands of the Son It is a universal authority, but it is a universal authority not to give eternal life universally to all men. It is a universal authority that the Son has to give eternal life to whomever He wills. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Nobody knows the Father except the Son, and all to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In other words, whoever it is that understands who the Father is, whoever comes to know the Father, comes to know the Father only because the Son has willed to reveal the Father to Him. And Jesus said in John chapter 5 that He has been given this authority, and He has authority to give eternal life to whomever He wills. If you have eternal life this morning... It is due only to the fact that, not that you willed it, but that the Son willed to give you eternal life. To whom does the Son will to give eternal life? To all those whom the Father has given to Him. Because John 6 says that all that the Father has given to Him will come to Him, and the one who comes to Him He will certainly not cast out. For this reason He came down from heaven to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? That of all those whom the Father has given to Him, He may give eternal life, and He will raise all of them up on the last day and lose none of them. And it is, it is this truth, these doctrines, this is where the security of the believer rests. The security of the sheep does not rest with the immutable nature of a human decision. It doesn't rest with the unchangeable nature of walking an aisle. There's nothing magical about checking a mark on a card or filling out a card or raising your hand in meeting or praying a prayer. None of those things gives eternal life. None of those things get us into an eternal life that suddenly we can't get out of. Some people think that that's how eternal life works. You get somebody to make a decision, the rash of the moment, you influence their emotions and get them to walk an aisle and they come up to the front and they've walked the aisle and boom, they're in. We got them. Now they can't get out no matter what they want to do. They can go out and live like other pagans, but hey, they prayed the prayer and they're in and, and we baptize them as quickly after that as we possibly can. And because they made that decision at one point, when they were five or six or 10 or 15 or 25, because they made that decision, now it's irreversible and they can't get out. Scripture always and everywhere teaches the security of the sheep. But listen, Scripture never attaches the security of the sheep to the immutable nature of the human will or an act of human will or of a human decision. Do you know what Scripture teaches is the, is the foundation and the form of our security? The will of God and God alone. Scripture always traces our security back to the fact that God in eternity past has decided to save a people. And because God has chosen to do that, and because God chose those people, and because God gave those people to His Son, And because the Son must fulfill the will of the Father, and He cannot fail, and He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to Him, because those things are true, the sheep are secure. They hear His voice, He gives to them eternal life, and nobody will ever pluck them out of His hand. Why? Because our faith is mighty, our decision is irreversible? No, but because He and the Father are one, and nobody is able to pluck them out of His hand or the Father's hand, because He is the Savior who cannot fail to do what the Father sent Him to do. Now, that was all the groundwork that we covered last week, right? All of it kind of in a nutshell. You say, that's a nutshell, that's an awfully big nut. Because, yeah, that's a nutshell. Now, here's the question that comes up. Actually, two of them. Number one, does this, does this do away with the necessity that sinners have to repent and to believe in the gospel? In other words, does this do, does this, do these doctrines do away with the necessity of the unbeliever to repent and to believe the gospel, the the responsibility of man. Does that mean that sinners are no longer responsible? If God is the one who does the choosing, if God is the one who gives them to the Son, and it is the Son who saves them, does that then do away with the responsibility of man? And the answer to that is no. Scripture never draws that conclusion. Scripture always teaches these twin truths, that the Father is sovereign, that God is sovereign in salvation, and He is infallibly saving a people for Himself, and that He cannot fail in that task, and that not one person will be saved apart from His sovereignty, And not one person will be lost because he is sovereign over that salvation. Not one person whom he chooses to save will be saved. But at the very same time that man is responsible to turn from his sin and to repent and to believe the gospel. 
and that man will not turn from his sin and repent and believe the gospel is entirely an act of his own perverted and depraved and fallen will. Unbelievers do not will to come to the Savior. They do not want it. They do not desire it. Something must happen in the heart of a believer before they will ever come to repentance and faith. They are responsible for that repentance and they are responsible for that faith. Sinners must respond to the message of the gospel. And so then the second question, and by the way, any sinner who goes to hell because they have rejected this, the truth of the scripture, any sinner that goes to hell gets for eternity exactly what he wants and nothing less. They want darkness. They love darkness. That's what they get, eternal outer darkness. They, they do not want to bow the knee to Christ and confess Him as Lord and Savior and receive His grace in this life, and so they get to spend an eternity getting the benefits and the fruits of everything that they have wanted and worked for in this life. Every sinner who fails to repent, does not repent, and dies in rebellion against the sovereign King of the universe gets exactly what they want. They don't get anything that they don't want. They want to be away from God. That's exactly what they get for all of eternity. It is eternal conscious torment. So now the second question, if these things are true, then does that negate our responsibility to go out and to preach these things? In other words, if God has already determined who he's going to save, am I therefore not responsible? I, I can just say, hey, it's all on God's hands. I don't, I, I don't have to do anything then because God is sovereign in these things. I don't have any responsibility as a, as a preacher or proclaimer of the gospel. Scripture does not draw that conclusion either. We are responsible to preach. It was Paul who went to Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he said to those people on Mars Hill, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And Paul went out and he preached the gospel. We are called to go out and to preach the gospel. And listen, to preach the gospel as widely as the fall. How wide is the fall? It is all mankind. So that is our commission, to preach the gospel to every creature. Charles Spurgeon, in discussing these very doctrines, and by the way, Charles Spurgeon believed these doctrines as strongly as anyone, Charles Spurgeon wisely said, if I, were, if I knew for certain that there was not a single elect person on the face of the planet, I would still preach the gospel. Now think of that for just a second. If I knew for certain that I was the last believer on earth, and that there were not a single elect person on this planet, I would still preach the gospel. Why would you do that? Because that's obedience. That's what we're told to do. If Scripture said, go out into a forest, outside of earshot of any living human being, and preach the gospel to a tree. If that was the command of Scripture, it's not. But if that were the command of Scripture, we would be obligated to obey that, whether it made any sense to us, or whether it accomplished anything in this world or not. We would be obligated to go out into the forest and preach the gospel to a tree, if that's what Scripture commanded us. Because God is glorified in the proclamation of His truth. And any time His attributes are displayed, any time the truth is proclaimed, and you can preach the gospel to a, a gathering this size or larger, or ten times this size if you want, all filled with unbelievers who will never repent, never believe, all of them goats, none of them sheep who have been given to the Son, you can preach the gospel to that crowd and in the proclamation of that gospel. You are fulfilling the divine commission and you are bringing glory to God. Why? Because any time that what God has done for sinners is announced to men, even if they're all unbelievers and none of them ever repent, any time that that message is announced to men, God is glorified in that. Because the news of what He has done in His grace for sinners is proclaimed before people. And so we can rejoice in that and we would obey that. So what is our commission, our calling? Is it to somehow discern who those who are been given to the Son by the Father are and then to preach the gospel to them? Preach the gospel to every creature. That's our calling. Because God knows who it is that He has given to His Son and the means by which He calls those people to Himself is the faithful proclamation of the Gospel. And all men are responsible to repent and to believe that message. And those who have been given by the Father to the Son will repent and will believe that message. So that is your theology 
in a much bigger nutshell again. So that brings us to verse 3. Now we have found that the, that the concern of God and the concern of Jesus Christ in this prayer is the glory of the triune God, the glorification of the Son, so that the Son may glorify the Father, and that this prayer and what concerns Christ in this prayer is giving eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. It is the eternal life of his people that is in view in the passage, in this whole prayer. So beginning in verse 1 and 2, we saw last week that the, the Son desired that he would be glorified through the cross so that in glorifying, so that the Father glorifying him on the cross, that glory would redound, rebound to the glory of the Father and the Father would be glorified through the Son. Once again, the salvation and the cross and all that pertains to it is about the glory of the triune God. It's not about your good. It's not about your good things happen to you. It's not about your best life now. It's about the glory of the triune God. So he is praying for the Father to glorify him just as the Father has already given to him authority over all flesh. So that, in verse 2, all that the Father has given to him, he may give eternal life to them. That is what the Son came to do. That's the work he is describing in verse 4. So we come now to verse 3. And here we have a description or a definition. We'll see what, which one it is here in just a second of eternal life. In verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now every once in a while we come across a passage in Scripture, a verse or a little passage where you feel like the economy of words is at an amazing level. As if the author was able in just a, a few short words to condense an amazing amount of theology and truth in one little small package. And this verse is one of those verses. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In that one sentence, really, John is summing up so much of what he has already taught all the way through this entire gospel. What is eternal life? What does it mean to know God? Who is Jesus Christ, who is sent by the Father? What is the purpose of knowing the Father through the Son? What is the purpose of all that God has done? And all of that is kind of summed up and and packaged into this verse. And we're going to take the time today just to look at this verse and the definition of eternal life. And I'll warn you at the beginning, There's for those of you who have read your Bible, you're not going to hear anything new today. But sometimes for those of us who have read our Bibles, it's good to go back and examine the fundamental things of the Christian faith, uh, especially things pertaining to eternal life and what that is and what that means and how we receive it and, and the implications of that. Actually, you know that I think about it now, you should be glad that I'm not going to say anything new to you because when I begin to say new things to you, that's when you ought to be concerned. And you're sitting there saying, oh, that was new. Oh, that was new. Hey, that's new. That's when you need to get the elders involved and and get me out of this place. So these are some fundamental things about what it means to be a believer. There's nothing head-scratching in this. There's nothing uh, uh, infinite or eternal in this in in terms of things that most Christians who have eternal life do not understand. But it's, it's uh, it's a wonderful verse that kind of encapsulates much of what John says concerning eternal life. This is why he wrote the book, so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. So this is eternal life that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So let's begin with what it is and why we need eternal life. The very fact that Jesus came to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him is an evidence that we, it, it points out the fact that we do not have eternal life and that we are not born with eternal life. Man, when we are born, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. You were not born with a little spark of divine life inside of your heart that needed to be... <laughs> fanned into a flame so that you might know God and and blossom into the glorious star child that you are today. That might be popular in some circles, but that is not what Scripture teaches. You are not born with a spark of divine life. You're not born on life support. You are not born terminally ill. You are born spiritually dead. Every individual who was ever born into this world, save only Jesus Christ, born in Adam, is born spiritually dead on arrival. 
and cannot be resuscitated. And there is nothing that you can say or do for or to that person apart from the work of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit that can change that condition. Nothing can because we are born spiritually dead. And that spiritual deadness is total. That means that the sin that has corrupted us and causes us to be spiritually dead is a sin that affects my affections. It is a sin that corrupts my mind so that in my eyes I cannot see the truth. I cannot behold in things truth. It means that my heart has been hardened so that it needs to be softened. It cannot even receive spiritual truth. And my mind is darkened so that I cannot even understand spiritual truth. And I am dead and unable in any way to respond to God's offer of the gospel. I am unable to, to, to think clearly about who God is or even to know God on my own. I cannot, I cannot grope for Him. I cannot, I cannot reason my way to God because my reason is broken. Every faculty of our being, when we are born into this world, every faculty of our being is affected and perverted and destroyed by sin. And it is corrupted by sin. So that as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, when it comes to the law of God, which is perfect and holy and pure and righteous, that law I cannot submit myself to. I cannot as an unbeliever, I, 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 cannot even, I do not even desire to keep the law of God, nor can I. And the hostile mind and the hostile heart cannot subject itself to the law of God because it is unable to do so. And so we are born spiritually dead into this world and the announcement of the gospel to spiritually dead sinners, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, is as effective as going into a morgue and saying, hey, everybody, get up. It's not going to happen. Nothing can happen by the mere word itself. Something else must take place. We must be given spiritual new life. And listen, this is the case not just for the rank unbelievers and all those who've never been given by the Father to the Son. This was the situation that described us as well. In fact, most of the Scripture verses that I've just alluded to in that description of our corruption uh, is specifically describing believers before they came to faith in Christ. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2 says, we, 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 believers, you and I, were born and dead, trespasses and sins. And we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And we, you and I, were children just as the rest of unbelievers were. We were in that same condition. Colossians chapter 1 says, we also, our minds were hardened and darkened and unable to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, Titus chapter 3, we ourselves also once were disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, just like everybody else. But then the love and the kindness of God, our Savior towards man appeared, and not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. We're the recipients of it. He is the author and initiator of it. All of that is by His grace, because we were in that very same lost condition. So as a believer, those as one who is who knows that you are saved and knows that your salvation is an eternal reality and you cannot lose that, you cannot look at yourself and say, well, because I was given by the Father to the Son in eternity past, therefore I was born with a different capacity. I was born with a different ability. I was born not as lost, not as dead, not as sinful, not as under wrath as the rest of mankind. That's not so. All of us were born into that condition. But God, by His grace and for the glory of His name, has changed that condition for those whom the Father has given to Him. So this is our great need that we needed to be saved. So what is the rescue plan of God? Well, this is what Acts chapter 4 refers to as the predetermined plan of God. Acts chapter 2, the predetermined plan of God. That God chose to save a people and He chose to rescue a people for the glory of His own name. So how did God do that? He sent the second person of the Trinity, His own Son, into this world to die for sinners and to pay the sin price for all who will believe upon Him. 
John chapter 10 says he came to die for his sheep. Ephesians chapter 5 says he came to die for his bride, the church. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says he gave himself up for me, for us. He died for us. He died not just to make salvation possible. He died to pay an actual atonement price for all of the sin of all of the people who will ever believe upon him to pay in full that entire sin debt that we owed, all of us owed, to pay that in full so that he might declare that it is done and the price is paid and it is finished and the work has been completed and salvation has been purchased and bought. That is what he came to do. He came to die for his sheep and to give his life in our stead. He bore our sin in his own body on the tree. He didn't make salvation possible. He purchased it and he finished it. He didn't just make it available for you to do with what you want. He actually accomplished the work of redemption, having forever purchased the people for his own glory. That is the work of salvation. That is the work of redemption, which God has done. So the fact that we needed to be given eternal life, the fact that he gives us eternal life is evidence that we needed that to begin with. So now let's ask ourselves, what is then this eternal life? This is eternal life. Eternal life is defined by a couple of things. Number one, by its duration. It's defined by its duration. Eternal life is what? Eternal, yeah. yeah. See, you're still awake. At least a couple of you are. It's eternal. Okay, very good. So now this should forever answer the question of, can I lose my eternal life? If you can lose eternal life, then is it eternal? No, it's temporary, isn't it? Those whom God gives eternal life cannot lose that eternal life because of the nature of that life, and it is an eternal life, which means that it begins, at least in terms of your experience, and understanding and reception of it, it begins at a certain point in time, but then it continues on for this life, till you sin next time, till you forget to confess a sin, till you do something willingly. How long does that go on? It goes on for all of eternity. Eternal life is defined by its duration. It is an eternal life. You cannot lose it. And it's not, it's not that you cannot lose it because of the nature of your faith or the nature of your ability to be sanctified or walk in holiness. You cannot lose it because it was given to you as a gift. And the life is not something in you that you start up by virtue of your faith or some activity that you do. The life is defined not only by its duration, but also by its nature. And, and it's eternal for this reason, that it's the life of God. The life that you have that is eternal life is not a life outside of God, outside of us, that God kind of creates and sort of throws into your heart for a period of time. That's not how it works. We are born again by the Spirit of God, and the life that we have, which is eternal life, is a divine life. That is why we are sharers or in or partakers in the divine nature, by virtue of the life that the Spirit of God has created within us. That is the life of God. It is the divine life of God. It is God's life in us that we live and that we enjoy in eternal life. That is why it is eternal. Because the life of God that He shares with us does not go out and it is not extinguished. And so it is by virtue of its nature, not only its duration, but its nature, it is an eternal life. And it is an eternal life that we enjoy now. It is completely improper for you and I to say, when I die, then I'm going to receive eternal life. I've heard people say that. When I die, I receive eternal life. No, you have eternal life now. Eternal life is something that you and I possess at this very moment, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have been born again and saved, then the life that you have is eternal life, and it is the same eternal life that will continue all the way through your death. You will close your eyes, or if you die with your eyes open, however that works, you will pass through the veil into eternity. You will be standing in time, and you will step into the presence of Christ, and there will be no hiccup. The life that you have now will continue with you all the way through death into eternity, and it is the very same life that you will enjoy 10,000 years from now. 
The difference is that you will enjoy it in the presence of God physically 10,000 years from now. And the difference is that you will enjoy it without the shackles of this body of sin and death that we currently inhabit. And so our enjoyment and our understanding of and our experience of that eternal life will be different because we won't be shackled to bodies of death. But the life itself that you and I possess right now as believers is the same life that we will possess 10,000 years from now. We don't get an upgrade. Just get to experience more of it. Just get to experience more of it. It's kind of like, well, that was a bad analogy. Okay, I'll, t- I'll give you my bad analogy because we have nothing but time this morning. I was going to say it was like you get a brand new car, right? And you're in the back of a Maserati or something, and you get thrown into the trunk of it. And your ability to experience that wonderful car is limited by the fact that you're handcuffed and in the trunk of the car. <laughs> but maybe there comes a point where they unhandcuff you, take you out of the trunk and put you in the driver's seat, and then you get to enjoy the full realities of it. That's the same thing with our eternal life. Our ability to... I told you it was a bad analogy. I warned you at the beginning. It's the same thing with eternal life. Our ability to experience that and enjoy that now is limited by virtue of the fact that we are in bodies of of fallen flesh. But when we shed these bodies, it's the same life, but it's going to be a totally different experience. We could go from the trunk to the driver's seat. All right, well, let's move on. John 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, not will someday have, not might get, but he has eternal life. Eternal life is the present possession of all who believe. First John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And eternal life is also defined by the fact that it is, it is a life of quality, not of quantity. Eternal life doesn't mean that we just we keep on living and our days go on forever and ever and ever. That's, that's not the essence of it. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Unbelievers live forever. Unbelievers live forever. Unbelievers live in a resurrected body fit for eternal destruction, and it goes on forever and ever. Unbelievers also will experience an endlessness of days. Eternal life is not just endlessness of days. Eternal life is a quality of life. It is a new heart. It is new affections. It is new joys. It is desire. It is peace and joy and tribulation. It is joy and peace and suffering. It is the friendship with God and with Christ. It is knowing that I am loved. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is the the new heart and desires that come with that, and a desire for righteousness. It's all of those things. It's a quality of life. It is having life more abundant. That is eternal life, not just endlessness of days. Unbelievers get that, but it is a quality of life that you and I now enjoy. So Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, there's some question. Is that statement a definition of eternal life or is it a description of how we gain eternal life or how we obtain eternal life? Is it a definition of eternal life or a description of how eternal life is received? And this requires a little bit of thought because it's not necessarily a, a, a clear-cut issue. There is a sense in which this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a sense in which that is a definition of eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is, is knowing God, is it not? Isn't, the, isn't that which keeps us from the life of God the fact that we are ignorant of God? We don't know who God is. We don't know who the one true God is. We're born into this darkness. We don't have this, the God revealed to us, and so we don't know Him savingly. And so eternal life is, in that sense, coming to a knowledge, a true knowledge of who God is and what He has done for me in Jesus Christ. And eternal life is me living out this knowledge, this new personal relationship that I have now with God. But in another sense, it is also a description of how eternal life is received. Is it not? How is it that I come to receive eternal life? It is when I come to understand who God is, and I am brought to a knowledge of Him, 
And in being brought to a knowledge of him, I am also brought to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And I receive that eternal life by coming to know God in the person of Jesus Christ. So I would, if I had to choose between definition and description, I'd say it's probably more likely a description. There's actually a parallel phrase. I shouldn't say the parallel phrase. There's a similar sentence structure in John chapter 3, verse 19. And I want you to look at John 17, 3. And I'll read to you John, uh, I'll read you the other passage, John 3, 19. Listen to what John says in John chapter 3, verse 19. Now remember, this is the, in the context of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then John writes this, John 3:19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Now you see the similar sentence structure? This is eternal life, that men might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. There's a similar sentence structure and what John is doing in that similar sentence structure. Let's go back to John 3. He's not telling us, uh, he's not defining for us what judgment is. He is describing to us why men are judged. Why are men judged? Because the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. How is it, what is it that leads to condemnation? It is the rejection of the light that God gives that leads to the judgment or the condemnation. Likewise, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is it that leads to eternal life? It is coming to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so this is what eternal life is. This is how we are brought to a knowledge of, uh, 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 this is how we are brought to eternal life. We are brought to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. We are come to know the only true God. And the word know there doesn't mean that we know God perfectly. It doesn't mean that we know everything there is to know about God. It doesn't even mean that we know everything there is revealed about God. But the idea behind knowing there in that word is the idea of a close, intimate, familial relationship. We have been brought into an intimate relationship with the one true God. This is eternal life. God brings us into a relationship with himself. And because of God's activity in doing that, you and I have eternal life. We've been given eternal life because God has brought us into that relationship. So we know him, the one true God. It is impossible to have eternal life without first knowing the one true God. And we must know the one true God. Not a God of our own making, not a God of our own imagining, not a God as we feel comfortable with him, not any other God. Every other God is an idol. Every other God is the work of men's hands. Every other God is a demon. There are people who teach that the God of Christianity and the God of Islam are the same God. Just because they both go back and Islam claims that that God is is the same God as uh, revealed himself to Abraham. That's a lie. The God of Islam is a demon. The God of Islam is the devil. That's the truth. Every other God is a false God. It is only in knowing the one true God that you and I have eternal life. We are brought into this relationship with the one true God who is the living truth. And there is only one God and there are no others. Now some people take this statement, there's some people who take this statement of, of Jesus in John 17:3 as an evidence against his deity. You can imagine that because they say, look what the passage says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Some people say if there is only one true God and Jesus is praying to that one true God, then Jesus can't be what? That one true God. That's the argument. Well, that's nonsense because Jesus is not in this passage denying that he has uh, equality of nature with the Father. It's ridiculous to think that given everything else that Jesus has said. And the fact that the very next sentence out of his mouth has to do with receiving the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. So he is, he is that one true God, 
but he is also the God-man, and the Son is communicating with the Father, and Jesus is not denying that he is that one true God. He is talking with another person who also shares the very same nature, which is that one true God. So we come to know that Jesus, that we know, come to know who the one true God is, and second, we come to know the true God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. To know God apart from Jesus Christ is not to know God savingly. And catch this. You and I can be very orthodox in our understanding of God. We can believe that He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can believe in three persons who share the one nature. We can believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. We can believe that the Holy Spirit is also God. We can believe that the Bible is true. We can believe that the Bible is orthodox. We can confess with our mouths all of those things and still go to hell. If we do not embrace that one God as He has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of Orthodox people in hell. People who understand the truth in a very Orthodox sense, but have never come to know that God through the person of Jesus Christ. It is one thing to stand off from afar and to observe who God is and to confess, I believe and know all of that. It is another thing to walk into and embrace that one God as He has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the one who is in the bosom of the Father who explains and reveals to us who it is that God is. Because no man has seen God at any time but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father, God, of the Father. He is the one unique God. And He is the one who explains to us who the Father is. So we must come to know the one true God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is revealed in creation, but not savingly. In other words, you and I can look at a sunset and we can observe that God is mighty and that He is wise and that He is artistic and that He is grand, that He is beautiful, that He is infinite, that He's powerful, that He's glorious. We can observe all of that, but I cannot observe a sunset and come to understand that Christ died for me, a sinner, to pay the price for my sin. I can see God revealed in creation, but not savingly. Further, I can see God revealed in conscience, but not savingly. I can reflect upon my own guilt, my own conscience, and I know that I am born with a sense of right and wrong. And that these things are not just drilled into me by my parents, but that I know that these things are right and wrong. And I can reflect upon my own inability to keep what I believe to be moral standards and what I know to be moral standards. I can reflect upon that conscience and understand that I am guilty and understand that God, this God who I see in creation, also must be moral and righteous and just and holy and He will punish lawbreakers. I can understand that from my conscience. But I cannot reflect upon my conscience and be saved. God is savingly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealed in creation, but not savingly. He's revealed in our conscience, but not savingly. He's revealed in Christ, savingly. It is when I look to Christ that I understand the love of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. It is when I look to Christ that I understand who God is and what God has done to save wretched sinners. And it is when I come to Christ that I have come to God as He has revealed Himself to mankind. Not as I make Him up in my mind, not as I fabricate Him in my heart, but as I come to God as He has revealed Himself to us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is man's most fundamental need? To have eternal life. This is what the Son came to do, to give life to those whom the Father has given to Him. How has He done that? By revealing to us the Father and by bringing us to a knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And Christian, we must always come back to this reality, that if you understand who God is and if you have come to Him savingly, it is not because you are wiser It is not because you are smarter. It is not because you are more reasonable. It's not because of any intellect or anything in yourself that you have come to know that. God would still be darkness to you if He had not chosen to reveal Himself to you. He is not obligated to reveal Himself to anyone, but He has revealed Himself to you. And He has made you to know who is the one true God and what He has done in the person of His Son. And for that we give Him glory. Because if it were not by His grace 
We would not know any of this, nor would we have eternal life. This is eternal life, that God has given us his Son, and that we have come to know the one true God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, you have been so good to us to give us salvation as as an act of your grace. Again, we reflect upon these things, we ponder these things, and they are so great and grand and beyond our ability to comprehend them. And we must just simply bow bow our knees and our hearts before this truth and to understand these things as you have revealed them and, and to love you for them and to thank you for them. We pray that you would give us grace to live as those who have been called out of darkness and into light and that you would strengthen us to that end and continue to give us grace to rest in the security that we have in Jesus Christ, in, in a world, the world in which we live, things seem to be coming undone. But Father, you are a God who gives us grace to live in the midst of that, and you are the God who has secured us. And there is no place more secure than in the grip of you, our gracious and triune God. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We thank you, glorious Son, for coming and dying for wretches such as us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us new life, for regenerating us and causing us to be born again by your grace and for your glory. It is in the name of your grace, Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.